Okay, children, welcome. I'm glad you're here with us this morning. All right. If you did not pick up one of the uh, one of the worship holders, there are worship holders in the back, specifically for you. Uh, two different age groups, ages three to six, or seven to twelve, that um, that will help you to understand the sermon text that we're walking through this morning. Mr. George has them in the back. So if you didn't get one and you'd like to get one, please go back and get one. Okay. <coughs> The title of the message this morning is Filling the City with Good News. Filling the City with Good News. As we look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through Acts chapter 5, verses four, verse 42. Now, I know that's a large block of material, so we'll try to, we'll try to go through the, the narrative as quickly and as fast-paced as Luke does in writing it. But before we read Scripture... Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we look into your word, you would speak to our heart and our mind. Give us understanding of just how you were working in the midst of the early church. But then help us, God, to apply that and by your spirit apply that into our lives and how you want to work here in Crosspoint at the local church in Baton Rouge, 21st century. Father, we pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds this morning from chasing other things, thinking about other things. And we ask, God, that you would help us to focus upon your word. And now, Lord, I, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, as we worship the Lord, we've worshiped already through singing, through praying, even as we met uh, as a large Sunday school class here this morning uh, to pray together and intercede on behalf of one another and on behalf of uh, the many needs that we have as a congregation as well as our city. We've worshiped through scripture reading. We've worshiped through hearing the word of God, or we, we are worshiping through hearing the word of God preached. And in a few moments, we'll worship through partaking of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, uh, at the closing of our service. But I mention this now because of the reality of who we are as a church. We are a new covenant community. And as a new covenant community, we've come together to worship God. We've come together to participate in what's called a fellowship meal or the Lord's Supper in the midst of our worship. And in doing this this morning, participating in the Lord's Supper, we're joining with the church eternal, with the church from the past and the church in the future until Christ returns. We're joining in an eternal celebration of an ordinance that Jesus himself has enacted through his death by crucifixion and his resurrection from the grave. Jesus spoke the words of the new covenant. And he said, when he said this, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for many, right, for the forgiveness of sins. You see, this new reality of a new covenant community, of a faith in Christ, this new reality comes for all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And this new covenant forms a new covenant people, 
it forms the church. And the church is that which was birthed through the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, where we began back in Acts, in the beginning of Acts. And so this morning we have in verses 32 through 37 kind of a, a glimpse. Really, we have a lot all the way through chapter 4. We have this glimpse of, of what's happening in the early church in its infancy. And Luke gives us kind of a, a window into the eternal working, internal working of God within the community of faith. So I want you to follow along as I begin in verse 32 of chapter 4, and we're just going to read through verse 11 of chapter 5 for now, okay? Acts 4, 32 through 5, 11. Now, the full number of those who were believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by, by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard them. The young men rose and wrapped him wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So this morning, the focus of our message is that if we fail to tithe, God will strike us dead. I'm just kidding. <coughs> but there is something significant about what's happening here at the end of chapter 4. In the beginning of chapter 5, you know, the genre of Acts is historical narrative. And it's important that we understand this because when we approach reading Acts, we need to know that it's descriptive and not prescriptive. In other words, it describes what's happening in the early church, but it's not necessarily prescribing the way that the church today should 
function. An example of this might be seen through verses 34 and 35 where people sell land, they bring it and they lay the money at the apostles' feet. Then the apostles distribute the money to everyone who has need. Well, if we fast forward just into chapter 6, we see that this system's not working. There's got to be some evolution here. And, and so there's, there's an there's a ordaining of a of deacon office or the beginning of the deacon office, and it says that they, they, uh, they selected seven holy men from among them so that they could handle that daily distribution because it got to be too much for the apostles to do as the church grew in, in the thousands here in the early church, the new church. And so we, we need to understand that this is descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. But here's what's happening. As we read through the text today, we need to put our minds around this and set our minds on this. Luke's describing the unique way that Jesus' power is filling and working through the early church. So we don't read this text as a one-to-one correlation regarding our church today, but instead we need to see the evolution of the church as it, as it follows God's rescue mission of the world. And we need to understand that, that God is in, in the same, well, in a similar way or in a way that God is working, was working in the New Testament church in the early New Covenant community, God still desires to work in the New Covenant community today. The church is still alive. We're still meeting here this morning, right? I mean, we've all been called by faith in Christ. And as those who've been called by faith in Christ, there's a mission that God has called the church to engage in. And that mission has to do with the same mission that the New Testament, the early New Testament church is engaged in. And that mission is God's rescue mission into the world to redeem the lost, to save people from bondage to sin, to share with them the hope of eternal life, that there really is one true way to come to God and to experience eternal life. And contrary to what everyone in the, contrary to what many in the culture say, there, there is one true way. This is what Scripture says. So as we consider what's happening in the early church, we need to realize that one of the things that's doing is they are filling the city of Jerusalem with good news. And in one sense, this is the charge for us as a church cross point here in Baton Rouge, this local community. We are still to be filling the city with the good news. And so I want to give us a few truths, a few truth statements as we walk through this text to see how this applies to us as a congregation. And the first one is this. The new covenant community should be a fellowship of Christians experiencing great grace from God and living with great grace toward one another. We should be a fellowship of believers experiencing great grace from God and living with great grace toward one another. I think there are a few notable hallmarks that we need to take in from verses 32 through 37 about the early church in this description that we see. And one of those hallmarks is that they were living in unity. We see that in verse 32. And this unity stems from their faith in Christ. It stems from the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling them as a community of faith. They were, they were tuned in to God's mission in the world. And so in verse 32, we see it, it says, now the full number, so that's a lot of people, right? The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. We know by this time the, the number of men, chapter 4, verse, verses 1 through 
four, somewhere in that area, verse four tells us the, that the number of men came to be about 5,000. So we know that there are at least 5,000 believers. And so now it says here that in verse 33, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And the central focus of this new covenant people was telling others of God's glorious work in their lives. Their central focus was telling others of how God, how they had experienced God's forgiveness and they had experienced freedom from bondage to their sin through Christ, through the the work of his resurrection. They were ready to meet one another's physical needs. In fact, there in verse 32, it goes on to say, no one said any said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This doesn't mean that they entered, they everyone sold their homes and they entered some sort of communal living and they they all lived out of one purse, just just pooling all of their resources. That's not what it means. I think we understand that. It also doesn't mean that they lived perfectly as well. They were still sinners like you and I. But here's what it does mean. I think it, it offers us a vivid picture of how the church ought to be. It offers us a stark contrast between the church of that day and the world of that day. You've got people who value land more than anything. And they're willing to go and sell their land and give it to the apostles so that the needs of the church could be met. You've got people that find out about a brother in need and instead of going and bringing him to the judge, they come uh, because maybe they owe them. Maybe they go and they they forgive their debt or or maybe they go and say, here, I need you to I want you to use this to help out so and so. And so they had this understanding of, of this community relationship of this loving one another. There was a unity and it was completely different than the world. This is the sense in which we need to understand what the the church ought to look like. It ought to look like something that's completely different from the world. A community of brothers and sisters who live in unity, who love one another, who are ready to sell off something if need be in order to meet a a deep need, a physical need. Well, the second hallmark we see is that they were radically selfless and sacrificial in their fellowship. And of course, this builds off of what we were just talking about Verses 34 through 37, we see it. You know, they were willing to sell their possessions and to meet needs within the community. And at the heart of this perspective, at the very heart of this perspective, was this idea that God owns everything. So Barnabas can say something like, well, I I have this land. Or another person in the congregation, in the community of faith, could say, well, I I have this this home or I have this asset and I'm going to liquidate it so that I can provide for the needs of the community. This is what Barnabas did in verse 36. Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, being a son of encouragement, he sold a field that belonged to him. He brought the money. He laid it at the apostles' feet. You know, in one sense, this is the overarching principle of the New Testament when it comes to giving. It is that we would give with liberality, that we would give to meet the needs. We wouldn't just say, this is the amount that I'm giving and that's it. But that we would even be willing to go above and beyond in order to make the gospel known to all people. 
in order to minister to the brothers and sisters of the faith within the community of faith. And many in here, even this morning, could stand and give testimony of how God has worked through Crosspoint in that very way to meet a need. And so for that, I praise God. But I also think we need to see that there was a a radical selflessness and sacrificialness in their fellowship. I mean, we, we live in a very different culture. We have steady jobs. For the most part, we have a steady income stream. We have homes, we have vehicles, we have children's activities. The list could go on and on. But I I don't want us to miss the greater truth here. And the greater truth is that the members of the early church were ready to give sacrificially and they were ready to give selflessly for the cause of the gospel. Thinking about the ways that Crosspoint has done that, and there's so many that I could name, and these are just a few, but but many of you at Crosspoint give a regular tithe as part of your worship to God. And then you go above and beyond to give special offerings to Offerings like the Louisiana Baptist Children's Home or to the Belmores in Alaska who we just supported through GBS and others gave to support them as well. Or even during the time that Fatty and his family were here and Fatty was arrested and uh, those in the congregation were sacrificially helping to support his family, to support Brent until he was deported and his family was able to join him and even to support his family joining him given sacrificially to construct a building in Uganda to replant a church in Mesa City to to aid aid a family in getting a vehicle to give financially to others so that they can go on a mission trip uh, all of these even this morning at the end of service will dis- will participate in a benevolence offering which goes to help the members of the congregation here at Crosspoint and so i praise god for the way that we have a giving congregation on the other hand i think there are others who need to hear the challenge of the early church. In fact, we all need to be reminded of the challenge of the early church as they live selflessly and sacrificially for the cause of the gospel. And I would contend that most of us need to consider this type of radical living and ask ourselves, does this characterize our pursuit of Christ? Maybe it once did. Maybe it does. Maybe it never has. We need to consider this morning, does this type of and selfless living characterize our pursuit of Christ. Well, there's a third hallmark that we see within the early church, and that was that is great power and grace were present in their fellowship. Great power and grace were present in their fellowship. We see it in verse 33. Evangelism was a priority. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. They were intent on testifying to others about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection had changed their lives, so much so that they couldn't be quiet about what Christ had done. And I love this because it's so simple. You know, today people want to focus on the latest and greatest growth strategies for the church. They want to focus on all the different aspects of what we need to have right in order to cause the church to grow. But... You know, the growth plan in the early church was pretty simple. The growth plan was go out, share the gospel with people, and watch God work. That was it. There was a trust. There was a great dependence. There was a Holy Spirit filling and leading that happened. And they would live faithfully. 
they would share the gospel with others that they came in contact with, and they would watch God work. The grace of God that was present in their fellowship, it was unique. They were meeting one another's needs with a sacrificial giving. They were unified in their mission. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Thousands of people were coming to faith in Christ. And when we read this narrative, we can think, well, that's that's great. But we live in a different time and we live in a different culture. But I, I want you to know that God's grace toward our fellowship, it doesn't have to be such a foreign concept. We know that God desires to work in us and through us and and, and perhaps the missing variable in the equation has less to do with God and has more to do with our being yielded and pursuing Christ. So here's the question. Do we want to be a new covenant community known for being with Jesus as we saw last week? Do we want to be the kind of community that experiences the great grace of God and lives with great grace toward one another? I think the answer is yes, we want that. We do want that. And if that's what we want, then I think what we see in the next section, a call to holiness, is what we need to take seriously. See, if this is our desire, then one key element in our fellowship must be that we guard against casually dismissing our community. And so we see the second truth that falsehood ruins kingdom fellowship and moral corruption hinders kingdom growth. Falsehood ruins fellowship, and moral corruption hinders kingdom growth. In the midst of this great work that God is doing in the early church, through great examples like Barnabas, we find in verse 1 of chapter 5 what seems to be an interruption in the flow of the storyline. And that interruption is Ananias and Sapphira. What did they do? Well, they sold a piece of land for one price, and then Ananias and Sapphira agreed together to go and misrepresent the truth, really just to lie. They, they, they agreed to go and they agreed to lie before the apostles, giving the impression or the understanding that they sold this piece of land and they're bringing all of it and laying it at the apostles' feet. And so they were being deceitful in, in, their, in their interactions. In fact, they saw what had happened for Barnabas and they thought to themselves, man, we would love that reputation. So they begin to to think about how they can steal God's glory from them or how they can get glory for themselves. And in the midst of it, they steal God's glory. And so as they sell this land and deceitfully bring the money forward, the storyline moves forward. And we move from God's grace to the church to severe judgment poured out on his people. And it's really an unexpected twist in the storyline, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest, we're reading through and we're thinking, what in the world has happened? This just all of a sudden it went from God's grace being upon all of them to now God's judgment being poured out on this couple. So here's the question. Why does Luke include it here? What's he telling us about the early church and about the new covenant people of God today? And the answer is this is about holiness. It's about holiness within the covenant community. Consider the context of the temple and the larger narrative and what's going on. What God is doing by his Holy Spirit in the midst of the church. We know from earlier in Acts as well as even in this chapter, chapter 5, verse 32. The Holy Spirit dwells within believers. 
Verse 32 says, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And what Luke is showing us is that the church, the new covenant community, actually is replacing the temple. The new covenant community has become the place of God's dwelling. And no longer does God dwell in the temple, but now he dwells among his people. No longer will people turn to the temple to receive repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now people turn to Jesus to receive repentance or to repent and receive forgiveness of sins. So in the Old Testament, holiness guidelines concerning the temple were very important. Only the high priest could go into the inner court. No one else was permitted. They had to walk in. They had to be holy as they were going into the inner court. And then only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one time of year. One time a year, that was the inner sanctum where God's presence was dwelling. And so here's what's happened. The early Christian community was to be a place of holiness. So much so that every blemish was magnified. Think back in the Old Testament, Aaron's two sons made out of ashes. They walked into the presence of the Lord to offer profane fire, unacceptable fire before God. They boldly and brashly did that. And what happened? They were struck dead, right? They were struck dead, right? Right on the spot because God is holy. And he expects his people to be holy. And so the early Christian community was to be a place of holiness. One writer said, if, if you want to be a community and dwelt by the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously, seriously enough to make it clear that there's no such thing as cheap grace. And the point I think we need to see, church, is that holiness in the Christian life is not an optional additive. It's not an additive for our daily lives. In the early church, God makes this point clear by judging Ananias and Sapphira. And so the clear message to the early church is that deception and hypocrisy is not to be part of the new covenant community. The church is to be a holy and blameless community. We must realize the grave consequences, pun intended, of sin. And we must be a people guarded against deceit and lying and hypocrisy. You know, the writers in the New Testament kind of flesh out this truth of, of the church as God's dwelling place. It's important for us as a new covenant community. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes this. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see the imagery here. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Or in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Peter says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, the holiness of the church is paramount to kingdom growth. Church, if we're going to be a new covenant community who fills the city with the good news of the gospel, then we've got to be a new covenant community who takes holiness seriously who seeks to walk with God, 
who seeks to be followers of, of, of God, who seeks to be disciples of Christ, we must realize that falsehood and moral corruption have no place among God's people. You know, what's interesting to me is that the narrative reads as if when sin within the community came, ministry stopped. But then when it was dealt with, the ministry of the church was able to move forward. You see what happens in in verses 12 through 16? God works uniquely and powerfully through his church for his glory and according to his plan. In verses 12 through 16, we we see the unique and powerful way that God is moving and working in the early church. In fact, verse 12 tells us that there were uh, that, that, that there were many signs and wonders done regularly. And all of the people were, were seeing it and, and they were amazed at what was happening. More than ever, verse 14 says, believers were added to their number, multitudes. The sick were being brought into the street and the sick were coming from neighboring villages so that even as Peter passed by in the street and his shadow fell on them, they were healed. All of them were, were healed. Now, I'm not advocating this morning that this is what's going to be the case and what's going to occur in Baton Rouge as you walk around your neighborhoods around the block. You're not going to see cots of people strewn out along the sidewalk just waiting for your shadow to pass over them. But the early church had confidence in God's power and God's ability. They had a deep trust in God's willingness and they wanted to engage God's mission to advance his kingdom. So what I am advocating is that we too should have such a confidence. The presence of the living God dwells within each of us believers. And so here's a question. How might God be working or desiring to work through you, through your testimony, through your witness into the the vocation where he's called you in the home, in the neighborhood, among your neighbors. Our prayer cross point should be thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. You see, we ought to be looking and expecting that God has a place for us in his plan of rescuing people from bondage to sin. Are we asking God to work in us and through us with great expectancy? Is this how we approach conversations in our day-to-day life, right? This is, this is Connect 365, where life intersects mission. This is how we're approaching those daily conversations. Well, the fourth truth I want us to see this morning is as the church, as, as we, the church, engage in God's rescue mission of the world, we can expect opposition. As we, the church, engage in God's rescue mission of the world, maybe we should say we should expect opposition. We know according to 1 Peter 5.8, Peter warns us that we're to be sober and alert because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. And I think from our vantage point, we can see that when Satan's unable to derail the church internally... That is, when the church is walking in unity of the faith, one heart and one soul and one mind, then look what begins to happen. 
opposition and persecution becomes, begins to come in from, from the outside. The religious leaders of the day were filled with jealousy. Look at what it says there in verse 17 of chapter 15. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that's a party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. So what do they do? They arrest the apostles, they put them in prison, but then in verse 20, God sends one of his angels in the night to rescue the apostles, to deliver them from prison. And so the angel opens up the prison and then gives the apostles a charge. He says, go stand in the temple and proclaim or preach or speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, this is incredible. They had just been arrested for preaching all the words of this life. <laughs> and now the angel comes and opens a prison door and says, go back in the temple and preach it again. And so they go back in the temple and they continue teaching in Jesus' name. And they're, they're doing it again and again and again. And then we see that the next morning, the priests and the Sadducees send for the apostles to be brought from prison to them. But when, when the captain gets there, he discovers that the, the prisoners aren't there, the apostles aren't there. And there's a question that comes to their mind. They're wondering, what would this come to? They're amazed that the apostles aren't there. And then someone comes in, darts in the scene, or the council's sitting and says, look, those guys that you arrested, they're back in the temple, and they're teaching and preaching in Jesus' name. So they send the captain of the guard to go and to get them and to bring them back. And, of course, they didn't use force because they were worried about all the people that had begun following them. They were worried about what might happen to them. But, you know, here's one of the most important parts of their ministry. One of the most important parts of their ministry wasn't the physical healing, those miraculous healings that were happening. The healings, though they were miraculous, they, they were performed as a testimony to Christ's resurrection power. You see, the healings themselves pointed to a much greater reality, a much greater truth. And that greater truth was that God is in process of making all things new. These healings didn't they didn't make people immortal. These people would still suffer death. But the healings were the bridge to share the greater story of healing. The story of spiritual healing. The story of, of deliverance of our soul from bondage to sin. And so the apostles were commanded to go and to speak to the people all the words of this life. You see, there's a healing that's much greater than physical healing. And that healing begins with recognizing our sin before God, repenting of our sin, and receiving the forgiveness for our sins from Jesus Christ. There's one who's given his life as a ransom for many. That's what we're going to celebrate in a few moments as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many to forgive our sins. But let me ask you this morning, what's the bridge to sharing the greater story of healing in the lives of your co-workers, neighbors, friends, and family? What is that bridge for you? For the apostles, that bridge was the, the healing, the, those miraculous healings. But what's that bridge as you interact with the world? How are people hurting that you're talking to? Are you listening for, for what they're looking for? How, how you can connect them with the gospel? You know, we shouldn't be surprised when opposition and persecution come to us, especially when the gospel begins making advances in the lives of people that we minister to. 
So Crosspoint, let me encourage us. Let us follow God in his rescue mission. Let us be holy vessels, bringing the gospel of healing to all people. Is that our desire? The fifth truth I want us to see is God remains faithful even through opposition. God remains faithful even through opposition. God answers their prayer in verses 29 through 31 of chapter 4. Remember the prayer of the apostles in the early church? And now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. While you stretch out your hand and you do this work to heal and to uh, to to save and you do these signs and wonders. And then verse 31, it says, when they had prayed, the place was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with great boldness. So in this section, we we see that they stood in one accord. Verse twenty nine. They continued speaking the truth, verses 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. And they go on in verse 31. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They were sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit in verse 32. God's spirit was dwelling in them and even giving them words to speak as they boldly spoke about what God was doing in their midst and in their lives. And their teaching had filled Jerusalem, according to verse 28. And because of all of this, because of this, they were being threatened. And they make this statement in verse 31, as they're speaking to the religious leaders, that Jesus is leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, this is significant. And the reason it's significant is because this goes to show that God's people have replaced the temple and that God's people are the the place of his dwelling. And so as leader, Jesus has pioneered the new way into God's creation. And as leader, he's the the author of life. He He is the chief ruler. And as savior, he defeated the power of death, rescuing people from the ultimate enemy, Satan. And as he's rescued his people, rescued us from the enemy, Satan, from oppression, from persecution, from bondage to sin. He's reconciled us to God. And so in him is forgiveness of sins and in him is comes repentance. And so we have repentance and forgiveness of sins through Christ. And this enraged the religious leaders. No longer will people turn to the temple for forgiveness, but now we preach Jesus Christ, the one who forgives all, the one who can cover our sin. And so in the face of opposition, God gave the apostles boldness to speak. He gave them boldness to speak truthfully about the good news, and he gave them words to speak when they were facing their accusers. Maybe you find yourself thinking, this is fine, but I'm having a hard time connecting this to to the current day. Well, it's true that we don't face much opposition or persecution in our country, but maybe what hinders us from being bold witnesses for Christ is not so much the perceived threat of others, but maybe it's what it's going going to cost us. Maybe that's what keeps us from being bold witnesses for Christ. You see, the apostles in the early church They're modeling what a life looks like when we've died to self and been born again. 
by the Spirit of God. And so if we're going to be the new covenant community that, that fills the city, our city, Baton Rouge, with the message of Christ, then first we must be a people who have died to self. We must be a people who have died to self. The final truth I want us to see from the text is in verses 33 through 42. A deep trust in God's faithfulness teaches us to rejoice through suffering and persecution and causes us to persevere in proclamation and discipleship. So they beat the apostles. They charged them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. But I I want you to notice their countenance in verse 41 when they let them go. It says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They, They weren't set back by their persecutors or by the oppression that they had Uh, those who were bringing opposition. In fact, what happened is they were strengthened in their resolve and they continued teaching and preaching as uh, Jesus as the Messiah. So I want to invite you as we close this morning just to contrast with me for a moment the mindset of the apostles and the believers of the early church with the Western church, with what we know to be maybe our mindset or, or the mindset that we see so prevalent in the church today. I wonder how many churches across our great land this morning are filled with people who think they're doing their religious duty just by showing up to attend a worship service for the week. I wonder how many people feel like they're actually doing God a favor by attending a worship service. I wonder how many people are are filled with half-heartedly giving their thoughts and words and worship to God. I wonder how many are filled with those who are holding grudges, maybe those who are bitter. I know it's dangerous to speculate, and we really don't have a standard to measure these kind of questions. But it seems to me that the mindset of the early church was a radically different mindset than that of the Western church today. The reason I say that is because even if none of those describe us, we know people that it does describe. And the mindset of the early church was completely different than the mindset of of the church today as we come and approach worship. I venture to say that even as we were coming today to worship, there were thoughts about all the other things that we're going to do maybe after service. Or maybe the plans we have for July 4th week. I know in one sense we're human and we battle that because of the culture that we live in, but... But I want to challenge us to think about the mindset of the early church and their approach to worshiping God and living faithfully following God and the mindset that can so easily creep into our own lives. See, God's word says we either die to self and live for Christ or we live for self and we don't know Christ. The early church's deep trust in God's faithfulness, it stemmed from dying to self They had this deep trust in God's faithfulness so that even in the midst of persecution and opposition, they were able to rejoice. This is the only way to live the abundant life that Christ promises. It's to die to self, to sell out, to pursue Christ with all that we have. What about you, friend? What about you, believer? How do you reconcile the faith displayed in the early church with the faith displayed 
in your life. I invite you this morning, this morning to consider these truths before the Lord. If we're to be a new covenant community that fills Baton Rouge with the good news of Jesus, what might need to change in our fellowship as a community of faith? What might need to change in our own spiritual walk with Christ? Let us pray together. While the worship team comes, you respond as the Lord is leading you this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you for such an example in the early church. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be a people who are guarded against deceit or hypocrisy or lying. That you would cause us to be a people, Lord, who desire to walk in holiness and who pursue you with all that we have, all that we are. A people who live a a radically selfless and sacrificial life. And we ask God that you would strengthen us and embolden us, lead us and fill us by your Holy Spirit to be your people who speak your word boldly, who testify of what you're doing in our lives boldly so that we might see converts of the faith We might see people come and become part of your kingdom family, this covenant community. So, Lord, we ask for this in the strong and the powerful name of Christ our Savior. Amen.